This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Since the end of apartheid in 1994, South Africa's economy has grown substantially at an average of roughly 3%. This year, however, has been challenging as a variety of internal and external factors have hampered growth. To discuss South Africa's current state and some of the key trends affecting the continent more broadly, we're joined by Colin Coleman, Goldman Sachs Head of Investment Banking for Sub-Saharan Africa and the head of our office in South Africa itself. Colin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Colin, you've just released a report on South Africa's current economic position. Tell us why you took on this project at this particular time and what came out of your research that was unexpected. We took it on because clients are asking in the context of our growth rates in South Africa dropping on a three-year trajectory to around 1.6% relative to double that for the last 20 years, whether we were slipping towards something more serious in terms of our fiscal balances. So we studied, we did some stress testing of South Africa to financial crisis conditions and discovered because of our deep financial market, our ability to absorb offshore selling because of the deep liquid currency and because of our low levels of foreign debt, that we're actually able to absorb financial crisis, obviously within limits. But this means that we have an ability to carry on growing, uh, but we need to restore the growth rate back to our normative 3.2%. And frankly, to deal with unemployment in South Africa, which is extraordinarily high at around 25% broad unemployment, we actually have to get to more like 5% growth. The actual numbers are you know, of around 8 million South Africans who cannot find work versus 16 million who have work. This is amongst the highest in all emerging markets. And so these questions of inequality and unemployment and a whole rising set of social demands from the population, like the students, but also the workers, the unemployed, the youth, is forcing people to ask the question, how do we actually change the structure of the economy to be more inclusive? How do we get greater growth? So South Africa has particular challenges of its own, given its own history and culture. But it's also got some problems that a lot of emerging markets have. Commodity prices, particularly as demand falls out of China, have just plummeted. And it's an economy that, for better or for worse, is highly dependent on its metals and mining industry. How has falling demand for commodities in particular impacted South Africa's outlook? Well, you know, the triple whammy of the Fed increasing rates sometime soon, plus China's transformation from an exporter and an infrastructure-led economy to services and consumer-led economy has led to this commodities problem. And the fact that third commodities price falling is impacting commodity producers like uh, South Africa, which is a metals and mining, not an oil producer, is obviously having significant impact on the price of our ability to sell these commodities into the world. So platinum mine or gold and so on and so forth. It's been partly countervailed by the fact that the currency has depreciated around 20% in 2015. And this means that on a currency-adjusted basis, we are getting quite good prices in the international markets for commodities, but not what they were. Because commodities are priced in dollar terms, but your cost basis is... Is rand. Is rand, yeah. And the problem, obviously, is that our costs in rand have gone up significantly. Energy, electricity, and labor are the two biggest input costs into mining, and these have shot up significantly, which is partly our own goals in South Africa 
with regards to the cost of electricity and the cost of labor. So you mentioned the Fed. The Fed's been talking about raising rates in the near future, and that's already had, just the prospect of it's had a pretty dramatic effect on South Africa with Iran falling, as you said. So when the hike arrives at some point, how do you think the economy will respond? Is it already baked in, or will there be further impact? I think the regulators, in particular the South African Reserve Bank, our Fed, uh, is very concerned that the reality will further compound the selling pressure on the currency, which will also stoke inflation and therefore produce a greater squeeze on the South African economy. I think that's true across growth markets. If you look at Brazil, you look at Russia, you look at Turkey, South Africa is no exception. So it's certainly discounted into the growth markets world as a whole that the Fed will increase rates, but the extent of that discounting is not complete. So we think there will be further volatility in the emerging markets, South Africa included. And what options do policymakers there have to cushion the impact of that? Well, particularly on the fiscal side, people are looking at mechanisms to grow exports, to look for other sources of revenue, for example, like tourism, and again, to undertake policy measures which mean that we are not effectively our own worst enemies in South Africa with respect to things like growing tourism, growing beneficiation capacity. And part of this is, for example, structurally making the labor environment more productive, removing regulations, which, for example, in the black economic empowerment space are very difficult for businesses to manage. It's one thing being able to manage rules you know, it's another for rules to change, and therefore there are factors in the internal markets which the regulators are beginning to understand that they need to settle down the regulatory environment and create conditions for business which are far more conducive to growth. So you've been out to see a lot of clients as you put out this report. What are the questions you're hearing from clients and what are their major concerns? I would say their major issue is the politics of undertaking these reforms. In other words, the reforms that we have articulated need to be undertaken to get back to 3.2% growth are matters like, for example, getting labor productivity and wages, wage inflation, to be much more in line, to get the state-owned enterprises to modernize, not unlike China modernized their state-owned enterprises, to get far more clarity on the energy environment in South Africa, and to stop waste and get a far better quality of output bang for the buck from state-owned resources. Uh, so they want to know what the politics of undertaking these reforms are and whether we believe that the leadership in South Africa will effectively undertake these difficult reforms. You talked before about the resilience of the South African economy, even in a period of turmoil. What are the main factors or strengths of the economy that you see that will help it withstand some of the turmoil we're going to see as commodity prices stay low and the interest rates rise? So I would say, firstly, you know, sub-Saharan Africa is a growth rate of close to 4%. South Africa is around 1.6%. So the region is a reasonably good neighborhood. We have, secondly, very strong corporates, extremely well-governed corporates that are participating in a very liquid stock market. And therefore, for investors, South Africa represents well-governed, well-controlled, highly compliant, well-managed entities that they can trade in and out of very well. And lastly, we have very transparent 
a well-governed financial institutions, in particular the Reserve Bank and the National Treasury is highly respected, much more so than many of the growth markets institutions. They're seen as transparent, reliable institutions that can manage the shocks in the economy well. So for these reasons, we are seen as a market in which you can invest, that there's growth, that there's reliability and somewhat resilience of the corporate sector. And the earnings of corporates have been highly resilient, notwithstanding pressure on growth in the markets. And they've demonstrated that they're well able to actually manage that. We also identified that actually the majority of revenues of the top 40 Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed companies are offshore revenues, whether they're African revenues or developed market revenues. And so ironically, the depreciation of the currency actually strengthens both the revenue of these corporates and the balance sheet of the country. Yeah, the reverse of what we're seeing here is U.S. multinationals see a negative impact on their foreign earnings from the strength in the dollar. South Africa companies stand to benefit. Exactly. And so the, the attitude of the regulators towards South African companies buying companies offshore is quite facilitative because they realize in the long term the dividend flow from the offshore dollarized income of these companies will be to the net benefit of South Africa in the long term. So with that backdrop, where do you see opportunities for innovation in the economy? So we would think, you know, when you look at where's the productivity and where's the employment creation, and obviously what we need is productivity and employment creation in South Africa, that areas like tourism, you know, South Africa, especially with a depreciated currency, is one, most beautiful country to visit, and two, very, very cheap, and the services are extremely good value for money. So the tourism environment should be extremely robust, number one. Number two, the beneficiation and value-add manufacturing sector around the minerals that are produced in South Africa could be a very good area of growth. And lastly, the services, but exporting those services into Africa. You know, Africa has a very low base of services in education, private education, private health, banking, technology, telecommunications. And so South African companies are in a very good position to export these services at a good cost into these countries. Colin, you wrote recently an op-ed about the need to respond to growing unrest, particularly amongst the student population, and how real reform has to broaden opportunity for that population. You have some personal experience. You share that in the op-ed with unrest in the student body. What are the short-term fixes that can help address those kinds of issues in South Africa? It's not obvious that they're short-term fixes. What the government did and the president did was effectively take the bite out of the situation by eradicating fee increases at universities, which was the main demand of the student body who were facing very difficult economic circumstances in meeting fee increases. And so by effectively eliminating fees in 2016, he's taken the issue off the table the question will be how they find the resources to do this. And, you know, as a personal story, as a student leader in the 1980s, where we were facing a huge amount of repression in South Africa, violence, as activists dealing with the problem of a racially divided South Africa that was now moving towards the intent of democracy, hitting our heads against the apartheid structure at the time, we experienced a huge amount of what it means to, as students, then coming up against the establishment, except we were coming up against an extremely violent state at that point in time. 
And so when we look back now and we see these challenges of the students who are fighting effectively for free education, for more universal access to the universities, some of these students who have difficulty with paying for the universities, feeding themselves and clothing themselves at the universities, both with the noble intent of getting an education. You know, we look back and we sort of wonder as to what our experiences mean for them today. And that's why I wrote that particular op-ed you referred to. My own point of view is that we have a very good track record in growing the resources in the last 20 years in the budget, but very poor track record in the quality of the spend. And we're just going to have to get much more bang for our buck out of the state in terms of education and health outputs. And where 80% of the education budget, which is by international standards a very large measure, it's almost 20% of our total budget is on education, 80% of that is spent on salaries. So one area in which they're going to have to look is the quality of that spend on salaries. Are they spending the right amount? Should they be decreasing that amount? Should they be getting less people doing more? What is the quality of the people that they're employing in the education world? This is very difficult because many of the education salaried employers are trade unionists and allied into the ruling alliance of the government. But we can't afford to have a non-productive state. We can't afford to have a consumptive state that is effectively salaried employees not producing goods and services that they are designed to produce. And we have to become much more disciplined. Beyond the delivery of government services, education, healthcare, and the like, where do you see other opportunities for South Africa to make investments or changes that could lead to more sustainable growth going forward? I think a critical issue is the appointment of leadership into the state-owned enterprises. I think we have to modernize these state-owned enterprises. You know, the experience of China is over a 30-year period. One, they didn't give up control of the state-owned enterprises, but they modernized them, they listed them, they brought managements which were effectively free of political influence. Uh, and the, talk a little bit about which industries in South Africa are state-owned enterprises for the uninitiated. So, so this would include transport, energy, in particular electrification. It uh, would include airlines, aviation, arms manufacturing. The state really has tentacles right across the economy. And it's kind of Soviet-like. You know, we need to have much more of a modern market mentality. It doesn't necessarily mean that the ANC, which is effectively a social democratic party, should give up its social democratic goals. But the question is, what is the most kind of useful instrument for them to manage these companies to be productive? And many think that looking to China as an example of how they've modernized those state-owned enterprises, listed them and produced independent management and governance from the state is a good example. And they are actually visiting and understanding what's happened in China. But this is not the only experience that tells you we need a more productive state. That's a very important example. The biggest story affecting the continent right now is the low price of oil. South Africa, not so much, but a lot of the other big economies in the region very heavily dependent on oil export. What countries have been affected particularly hard and how are they adjusting or coping? Well, the oil-producing nations, in particular Nigeria and Angola, which are the two large oil producers in sub-Saharan Africa, have been very hard hit. The experience of Angola is a particularly interesting one because they had just announced a budget at the end of 2014 
based on an oil price that was looking more like $80 average into 2015 forecast. And that was when the oil price crashed within two weeks. They actually very quickly took the budget back to Parliament and revised it for a $50 oil price and were very quick from a national treasury and a central bank point of view to cut the costs in the budget and budgeted a much more realistic budget. That was a, a, an indication of just how responsive, actually, they were to that situation. Nigeria's had a far more difficult time of it in terms of computing their reality for a $50 oil price instead of $100. And as a result, their growth rate has slipped to somewhere around 3.5%, which is roughly half where they were. And this is Africa's biggest economy with 170 million people. So they've had a much more difficult time dealing with the impacts of the oil price. People recently elected a new president in Nigeria. Uh, it was a milestone election for the country. This is the first time, really, that an incumbent president lost to a member of the opposition, and there was a smooth transition. So where does Nigeria stand relative to its peers in the region and among emerging markets more broadly? There's always been talk about Nigeria's promise, but... Is that promise realizable in the current environment? Well, I must say, we really shouldn't underestimate just how important that election was. President Buhari took over from President Jonathan Goodluck in a very peaceful election. I was in Nigeria three weeks before. There were many business people who were highly concerned, actually planned not to be in the country at the time of the elections, which demonstrated to me their own fears in regards to their personal safety, the safety of their families. But The election went extremely smoothly, and Nigeria really needs to fulfill its long-range promise. Its long-range promise is effectively, if you look at Africa, Egypt, which obviously has its Arab Spring moment and is recovering from that. Nigeria, post the election of a new president, and South Africa coming off 20 good years, entering currently into a slow moment. If those three economies were to combine in much more robust activity we would see an Africa growing at a much faster rate and really fulfilling its promise. Those three economies, I would say, are the ones to watch. If in combination they do well, Africa will find a good path forward. If each on their own do poorly, it's going to be a tougher road. How are some of the other countries adopting to a world where growth is sort of shifted down in the emerging markets and more and more of the global growth is coming out of the developed world? So I think that the impact of China in Africa is quite significant. And now this is both a positive and a negative because as China slows, obviously it does have an impact on people who are relying more on China. But China's long-range intent remains extremely strong. So growing at 6.8%, China at a $10.5 trillion economy is still adding very significant GDP, even on a slower basis, to the world. And Africa is very engaged you know, whether it's Ethiopia, where I've been recently and met with the prime minister, or Nigeria itself, or Angola, where there are 300,000 Chinese living, there's a, a very significant impact. So I would say China is a net positive for the African environment, particularly with regards to building infrastructure. The other area that's quite interesting is Europe has obviously snapped back quite significantly. Which has Europe been has historically been a, Africa's trading partner. It's been a very strong trading partner, obviously, is Europe has snapped back to close to 2% growth rates now, hopefully that will be a net positive for these African countries. The story of Africa is really of rising demographics, 
the provision of services to those who have very little starting to take effect, right? most dramatically in the telecommunications and IT space, the internet, payment technology, so on and so forth, and increasingly consumer activity. So a version of the China story, away a little bit from, in Africa's case, a commodity, volatile yes. um, economy, and more towards one that's more focused on providing services for the domestic market. If you thought of China 30 years ago, it's probably not too far from Africa as a whole. China is one country. Africa has over a billion people. It has an economy around $2 trillion of GDP. But it's relatively early stage in terms of its modernization. But growing at sort of 4% growth rates per annum over time, this is going to be a big story, big growth story, consumer, natural resources, and services. So let's talk about the future a little more broadly the next five or 10 years, how do you see the countries we've talked about today evolving and are they on the right path over time despite the current turmoil to be on a path of more stable growth? How do you view the sort of the continent as a whole five to 10 years out? Uh, you know, I'm a believer in Africa. I guess my career has been tilted towards Africa's growth and ultimately I believe that will be proven up. The fundamentals, demographics of Africa are so strong that services are required, financial services, telecommunication services, infrastructure, commodities, consumer behavior. All of this for that one billion population has a long road to run. And we have very good companies servicing it out of South Africa. You've got very strong interest from Brazil, from India, from China. And you've got strong indigenous reforms happening in these countries. So for all of those reasons, there's some fundamental belts and braces reinforcing good growth. But as I said earlier, I think that the individual countries at the end of the day, whether it's Angola, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Ethiopia, they need the individual leaders to take command and really grip the situation. And we need accountability in these countries and we need the end to corruption in many of these countries and we need good governance and we need professional administrations. I think the most significant question for Africa is whether it's got the institutional capacity to implement and execute. You used those words earlier today, and I think that can be true across Africa. And if we get the right young people, there are many of the young people coming out of the schools like Harvard and Yale and Wharton, when you visit those schools, they're full of African young people who are learning the skills. If we get them applying those skills back home, is a great promise of that implementation and execution improving, and that'll go a long way. Thank you, Colin. We'll end on that note. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on November 2nd, 2015. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.